Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts. People that are interesting, opinionated, and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Malk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as the political editor at BuzzFeed Oz, former ABC News in the Northern Territory. Humans of Twitter is their stories in their words, in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's addition to the Humans of Twitter list, Mark Stefano. Mark, hello. G'day, Steve. Is it Steve or Steven? What do you prefer? I, I Pretty much everything. Hey, you <laughs> fat guy. Malk is pretty straightforward. Yeah, Malk. How are you going, mate? I'm well, mate. Mark, how do you introduce yourself in social settings? Um, well, I sort of describe what I do as um, someone who's plugged in on the internet all day, all night, never gets a break. Um, <laughs> and... Um, I think that in social settings, the, the thing that I love most is that you can actually, um, no one actually care in real life. No one really cares about what you've been doing all day on Twitter. Um, so especially with my, especially with my girlfriend and my family, the two people, uh, the two groups of people that I speak to most, when I sort of talk to them about what's gone on during my day, which a lot of it involves Twitter, um, a lot of the time they're just like, glazed over like completely bored by what they're hearing about and it's it's so um it's so interesting that like i sometimes think there's two ecosystems in your life you know your online life which is a really important part of your identity and then Mm -hmm. there's like the in real life um the irl life essentially and um i think it's just a really um how i would describe myself in real life i always find to be very different to what it is online which i think maybe is for a lot of other people but i guess for some you know it might be the um they might be the same person but i think i'm very different how are you finding in cuz this is a new role as the, as the political editor for buzzfeed australia how are you finding then introducing yourself to politicians and staffers and and their important peoples where you probably have had a reasonable online relationship with them before meeting them face to face. Yeah, it's really funny actually. I um, you know, I think that uh probably one in two politicians know what BuzzFeed is. Um mm-hmm. and you'd be actually really supply, uh, surprised about who, the politicians who really like us and know what we do. Um obviously Julie Bishop was one um earlier this year that was <laughs> yeah. really funny because um we have like we've been going in the US and the UK for quite a long time and Mm. I thought to myself when I was down in Canberra I was like why don't we just try to like get the biggest interview we can um like we've interviewed like Obama and David Cameron in the US and the UK Mm -hmm. but I thought you know like why don't we get the biggest one so we called up Julie Bishop's office and I was like hi my name is gonna be weird my name is Mark from BuzzFeed and like oh yeah we know BuzzFeed Julie Julie (laughs) loves BuzzFeed um and 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 so we sort of pitched what is great is a lot of the time we're pitching to political staffers and politicians who understand that the internet can give you true global reach. So Mm -hmm. someone like Julie Bishop, who's the foreign minister, knows that if she talks to us, she's not just talking to people in Australia, that potentially what they're getting is um, a bigger US-UK audience and that's what um, we can provide them, like like local Aussie politicians, a real global stage a lot of the time. Um, Yeah, and it's funny, we... We've hit roadblocks with some people where we have to sort of spell out, you know, um, what's BuzzFeed and you sort of describe, you know, we're a website based out of the US that's pretty, um, that, that's all about, you know, um, sharing content and sharing news and trying to get on, trying to get really good journalism um, up and running and, and all that sort of stuff. But I think that when it comes to politics, you'd be surprised that 
um, a lot of political staffers spend all their days on Twitter. So when you do finally give them a call, they know exactly who you are, which I, I found to be quite funny. <laughs> do, do you think, because BuzzFeed is something that is, what, reasonably new in Australia. What are we here, 24 months Yeah, I think it's like 18 months or like 20 months maybe. I mean, I've, I've only been here 14 14 months going on um, and I was the first. Oh years. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's felt like so long. I've, I'm, I'm, I feel like I, every month I'm at BuzzFeed, it's like five months in uh, normal years because you're just so plugged in all the time. Um, mm. uh, but I was the first news hire um, and sort of tasked with trying to figure out news in Australia. Um, and then um, Jenna and Brad were the first two hires here in Australia mm-hmm. with Simon and they were doing news um, and doing all the sort of real traditional BuzzFeed stuff. You know, they're like um, the mm-hmm. amazing Australian lists that, that we do and the quizzes and, and all of that content. And then what happens is I sort of came on board and, and what we try to do is push the more like trying to get more traditional news and figure out how we can crack um, the Australian market. And and I think that the first couple of, you know, months was a bit tough. But then what we've found is that um, more and more and more over the last 14 months, like we've shown to the US and UK offices that Australia is just this real fertile ground. Like the internet in mm. Australia is a really um, uh, aggressive um, place where there are these amazing stories to tell. And I think that that's the really, if you're in the US or the UK, when you see a story out of Australia, a lot of the times there's this amazing, like, oh, I can't wait to see what um, these, you know, these random, this random colony is doing down under. Like we saw it, we saw it, you know, um, with this story about the viral video of this French person who came out to Australia, like, the, that story has like a worldwide um, viral audience. But if we can mm. tell the story from a, from a strange perspective, um, what that does is is we can do things like debunk the story or we can, you know, do the interviews that a lot of the other worldwide offices can't do. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a really exciting time, I think, to be a digital journalist because there's, there are still – a lot of journos in Australia that are beholden to their radio and their TV deadlines and they've got to do news newspapers still. But, I'll, you know, I, I look at what The Guardian is doing and, and we're coming, you know, we're a long way behind that. But what we're trying to do is we're sort of emancipated from the news cycle in a lot of ways because we don't mm. have to file to certain deadlines, which is like really a great thing as a journalist, I think. Are you copying any uh, sort of shade from the press gallery members, the other the other people down there? Because you're a member of the proper press gallery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, you find it's the complete opposite. Like, um, the who are these kids and their listicles? <laughs> no. So interestingly, um, it was I think a few stories that we've done um, have made the press gallery realize that what we're trying to do is serious journalism but mix it with a bit of fun so i said Mm -hmm. like the julie bishop interview earlier was one of those ones where um a few people in the press gallery went oh oh this is fun like we wish we came up with this idea um and then a whole bunch of like pretty solid straight stories like the mark latham expose that we did um Mm -hmm. has made people realize who are traditional journos um that what we're doing is traditional techniques but just in the digital realm like that's the thing i keep going back to is that BuzzFeed hire journalists who know exactly, um, you know, do do all this sort of good journalist practice that every other journal does, but we're just doing it on tweets and Facebook statuses and Reddit threads and all that sort of thing. And 
So I think that interestingly, like David Spears and Andrew Mears um, and mm-hmm. Eliza Borello, the, the three sort of guardians of the press gallery, have been amazing with us. They were just like, yeah, come on in, you know, like here, we'll sign, we'll sign you in, and we'll sign your 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 uh, applications for the press gallery, and then. I was just amazed by people like um, Catherine Murphy from The Guardian, the deputy political editor. Mm-hmm. She came up to us at the Labor conference um, to Alex Lee and I, and she just shook. Her, she introduced herself to us and said, um, "Out of nowhere, this is Catherine Murphy, who is like our idol in many ways." Said, "Oh." Um, my kids get all their news from you. And like, that was like a really, like, uh, like a really great thing to know that Catherine Murphy's teenage kids um, were turning to BuzzFeed for news. And someone like Catherine Murphy actually saw that as a good thing. And if if we can actually um, provide news to young people that they want to get, like, it's a really cool, it's a really cool notion that um, teens uh, and, you know, early twenties and like even early thirties people, people who are like, their whole lives are online that when it comes to news, they can actually turn to a source like BuzzFeed and that makes me really happy. Um, and so that's just Catherine Murphy. Phil Corey has been another one who's just been an absolute legend. Like Phil Corey, Mike Bowers, they've literally just said, if you need any help, please let us know. Um, right. And when you're a young journalist, when you've got people of the stature of Phil Corey and Mike Bowers telling you, telling you even Lenore Taylor being like, hey, if you need any help, um, please just let us know. It's just such a nice thing that to know that the press gallery, which a lot of people might think is very closed off, is actually quite the opposite. Um, they are very open to like new people and they've been so welcoming to us and, and it's been amazing so far. That's so great. Yeah, it's kind of it, – it, sometimes you worry that like um, journalists, journalists in Australia – can be hostile to to new arrivals and new media, and like we've seen that with like um, the Australian, obviously is pretty hostile to us, and that's okay. <laughs> I, I think that I think that um, I go back to the fact that um, if if we were respected across the whole spectrum of Australian society, um, it would mean that we've done nearly our whole job. But because we're not, I actually mm. get really excited by the fact that. There's a, there's a certain sense of rebellion within this whole new media digital journalism thing at the moment in Australia. We're, we're kind of like two or three years behind the US and the UK, um, which for me means, or for us really, even yourself, it kind of means that like we've still got, a, we've still got more growth um, and it still means we've got, we've got more to do, we've mm-hmm. got more minds to change and that means that we're going to get better and improve. Um, if if, if the Chris Kenny at The Australian or if, you know, um, Miranda Devine, if, if they were on our side of like, yeah, you know, BuzzFeed's the future, like that would mean that we're, we're nearly done. We're just so far away from that. Like we're so mm. far away from changing everyone's mind, which is means that we've got so much to grow. What was uh, your high school life like, Mark? Was it always, I, I want to be a journalist, I want to, you know, screw this joint, or you were really social, you're in the, you know, the school musical? What was your experience there? Yeah, look, I was I was bullied pretty heavily up until um, I was about in year nine or ten um, because I was a massive nerd, unsurprisingly. Um, and then I think that there's this thing that happens in, in year ten at most high schools where um, – the nerds finally start getting a little bit more respected um, amongst. Well, that's definitely what happened at my school. And luckily, because I played sport, um, I played a lot of soccer growing up. Um, it meant that the sport kids like knew who I was, and and they respected you know all that sort of stuff. I mean, my my schooling was was good, and I went to a, a Sydney private 
um, boys' school, a Catholic boys' school, a Mara school, and I had a great time. Um, and it was an amazing experience. I was school captain, which was I was very um, I was I was I was very privileged to get. But I think a lot Nerd. of a lot of yeah, right. And I think a lot of the I think I was in debate. You know, I was in debating. I was in the hmm. musicals. I, I did all that stuff. But for me, the probably the most thing that impacted me throughout my sort of high school years was my parents separated and 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 um when I was in year nine and and the thing that that can do to, to a young person when it occurs during puberty is it just sort of shakes your whole world up and up and down and 19 months later from my parents separating my mum came out as gay and I was just like what <laughs> I was like wow. I was like 16 and I just thought to myself like I had no idea what was going on I I I I, I didn't sort of, I was never really a self-destructive teenager. I was always, um, if something bad happened, well, I would just work harder at school. Like I, I was just such a massive nerd in that way. Um, mm. And it meant that I'd channel a lot of, a lot of my anger into school, um, <laughs> which is a really... A self-constructive teenager. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's kind of weird like that. And I, I, mm. I, I, I was, I think a lot of my self-destruction occurred in my early 20s when... Um, I started going out clubbing more, um, but when I was in my teens, I was a pretty boring kid. I was very much like I was very much a, a, like a mummy's boy, and I was very much um, uh, a teacher's pet in that way. I I never got a detention. I attended every. This is a, they gave out they gave out participation um, awards mm-hmm. if you were if you attended every single day of school and. Only like two kids every year would would attend every day every year, and and I attended every day of school in years like ten, eleven, and twelve. Just showed you that like I, how much I love schooling, um, and I love class. So yeah, it's it's like I my my schooling is super boring, except for my family life, which was super fucked up in that way. So how like that's a really interesting thing to go down for you, particularly now given the the, the tenure around the marriage equality debate that's taking place Uh, back when that happened for you and your mum said, Hey Mark, by the way, I love other women. Yeah. How did you, did you cop any heat from the community? How did you process that? Uh, I'd imagine your mum loves you very much. And from what I understand you, her, the picture you posted of her and her wife uh, on Twitter just earlier this week. Yeah. So, so, so basically um, I think that, I'm very lucky. I grew up on. I grew up in sort of the northern beaches um, of Sydney, which, uh, while very white and conservative, and very much Tony Abbott's heartland, um, mm. I think is very accepting of um, of people that are different. In that, I never really got a backlash from kids. Like, I never really got bullied. I remember the day after, like, and this is how this is how much of a nerd I was. And I had, like a group of like 10, 15 mates at school. We played handball and that sort of stuff. I remember the mm. day after my parents separated. I remember coming to school the next day, and the the bell rang for for first period, and I I literally got everyone together and I said to them, "Hey guys, I know this is going to sound really weird, but my parents separated last night." So if I'm a, if I'm a, if I'm a bit weird in the next couple of weeks, just know that's the reason why. And everyone just massively rallied around me and said like, "Oh man, like so shit," all this sort of stuff. And then 18 months later, I did the same thing. Like I literally told everyone like the the first you know day, uh, mm. like it, it happened. And I think that like, and they were so everyone was so expect uh, um, accepting of it. I think that. Um, this is the problem with perceptions in the community. I went to a Catholic boys' school. Mm. I, I, my teachers even found out about it, and they were all, you know, super accepting of everything. And 
I think that sometimes people like to think, oh, you know, Christians or Catholics, they're, you know, they're, they're the ones that are holding back marriage equality. It's like you actually go into those communities and you talk about, you know, gay people and they're mm-hmm. just so accepting of um, like it, it, it is so far away from their beliefs um, of what happens in the Bible or whatever. But if you actually put a, a human face to it, they're so they, there's usually just so much um, a, there's so much love in that community. Like there's a lot of Christians uh, and Catholics that I know, they actually all support marriage equality. I mean, there are other ones on the right, far, further right politically that mm-hmm. that hate it. But I think that um, there's Australia is a largely um, accepting community when it comes to these sort of issues, and especially when it impacts young people. If it impacts sixteen year olds, which it did me, you find that all these people come out of the woodwork to support you, not to actually pull, pull you down. And I think mm-hmm. that it's a really good thing now. What's it is really, I guess, and if I can swear again, it is really fucked up. Um, like last week, um, I don't know when this podcast is going to air, but the whole gaby baby um, controversy around mm. um, in New South Wales schools, the documentary that was banned, like that's the worst, like that's the ugly side of it. But if you actually, like that was on the front page of the telly and it, and it, it cited, you know, parents outraged and parents uproar but like if you actually dig a little bit deeper well you don't even need to dig deeper you just need to ask the right questions and it's actually done by a couple of far right wing chaplains who were upset about things and everyone everyone at the school actually supported the documentary being shown so i think that there's always this everyone talks about well the conchetta ferravanti wells the new south wales senator talks about the silent silent majority who are against marriage equality i think that Mm. it's a very noisy minority um who actually are against it you know they've all the polling says that it's you know two-thirds of australia support it but it means that the 30 percent who oppose it they're dictating the national agenda um and a lot of politicians are scared of that and i think it's very sad that australia is the last country to have acted on it and a lot of the times it's because our politicians just don't have enough courage um to to see the fact that while there's a third there that are against it two-thirds are for it and they'll prov- that that two-thirds will provide you more cover and give you more kudos and actually vote for you if you act- if you make a stand on an issue and there's been no politician in na- on the national public stage in the last you know, more than a decade who's been able to make a stand on it. And it's very sad, I think. Don't you think that the, the um, uh, was it an amendment? I think that Warren Inch uh, put to have uh, the the National Marriage Act. I can't remember what the yeah. actual words were, but that, that amendment to have uh, marriage equality recognised slash formalised, is that not, is that popularism or is that, Warren and, and co actually caring and wanting that no, I think to get it, through. I think it's, I think, you know, and this is the problem. Like I sometimes, we sometimes here at BuzzFeed like to war game out how marriage equality will get passed in Australia because like, mm. how is it going to happen? You know? And, and one of the options that I, you know, had this sneaking suspicion of a couple of months ago, which clearly didn't come to pass was like maybe Tony Abbott actually doing a complete, um, two middle fingers to Labor and allowing the conscience vote because Mm. what that would do um, would completely blunt an attack from Labor on the marriage equality issue, which I think is the most important thing now is that now Tony has clearly delayed and put it off to the next election cycle 
what happens now is that Labor can run on this issue at the next election. Um, I had this really cool idea that he comes out and says, oh, you know, conscience vote for all. It then passes and then he steps up as like the nation's leader and, and sort of says, look, it's not my view, but it's been obviously the view of the parliament and look, my sister is going to get married now and I'm very happy with that and blah, blah, blah. You know, that would be a politician taking a stand and actually like he would actually Mm. be able to show that the grace of a leader, like a true statesman. And instead on this issue, we just don't have any statesmen or stateswomen who are willing to just make some really hard decisions. Like it'd be great if a premier stood up and, 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 like a a Liberal Premier, like someone like Mike Baird or Colin Barnett, who said, you know, despite my issues with it, I've clearly listened to the community and I'm going to push for this. Um, Mm -hmm. And we haven't seen that in this country. And it it really is the big national embarrassment. If you think about the fact that Australia leads the world in so many areas of reform, and then when it comes to social progress, it just baffles my mind that we still don't have marriage equality. And it just, you know, it's just sad. It's, 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 and it's sad and it means that people like my mum and her wife um, still don't have the, um, still don't have all the rights that other people have. I just, I just, it just gets really, makes me really sad that this is mm. where, the kind of country that we live in that we can't get our shit together on an issue like this, which is, is genuinely supported by most of the population. Has the Australian political landscape devolved to a point now where anyone that says something honest or, or or even off, you know, the day's talking points, that's held up as uh, a breath of fresh air? Yeah, when yeah. realistically, what we're looking for is just politicians to to act exactly as you spoke of before. You know, what's funny. I, I've been looking um, at some of the politicians that just literally. Um, can do something that probably is against their party, but by standing up, even people within their party um, begrudgingly give them the respect or stand by a pop, uh, an unpopular mm-hmm. reform. And I think that very clearly, um, um, Mike Baird is an example of this. Like the guy stood up and said, "Oh, by the way, I committed a traffic infringement," and it was put on the front page of the Telegraph here in Sydney as though he was the great and almighty <laughs> honest politician. And it just shows you the guy at the moment can say literally anything, and everyone's going to fawn over themselves because. He's so honest um, about so many things. The other one which he did was, you know, he he granted um, welfare rights to asylum seekers. You know, it, that is just, I just felt like this is a politician who's just can actually see that by standing up to people within your own party um, actually gives you more kudos on the national stage. And, you know, you're right, the, the people who are, I'll go back to Twitter, you know, the people who are really, the politicians who are really good on social media, the really honest ones are really having a renaissance. They find their voices on social media mm. um, and, and, it, and it and actually buoys me with, with hope for the future because everyone says, oh, you know, it's all about talking points and it's all about this. And it's like, well, actually, if you look at um, the last six months or two years of politics, the people who have been rewarded the people the politicians who actually get shit done the ones that go forward um and have soaring popularity the ones that are super honest and the ones that actually stray away from the talking points so i think that um i i think that the internet facilitates that more and more because 
because politicians are allowed able to bypass journalists by you know using their twitter feed and facebook feed they don't have to go and issue a press release they can actually you know they can actually write a long facebook status or write a couple of tweets um and they don't have to go through the big murdoch press or fairfax press anymore and that, that makes me happy for the future it's a bit diabolical isn't it when we get to to this sort of stage and it just saddens me sometimes it really does <laughs> gosh mark where is where is the line for you when we talk about you you mentioned right at the top that that uh, given that you work for buzzfeed you're plugged in 24/7 where do you draw the line at what is public and what is private oh yeah well um i'm pretty i think the thing that i've learned a lot in the first 14 months is that uh, journalists um, are not this fountain of knowledge of um, authoritative um, godlike stories. And I think that, what? well, do you know what's amazing is that every time I say this to someone, they're like, oh, yeah, but they haven't realized that for many decades, journalists have written as though they're the voice of God, you know, this is the story, here's the lead, here's the inverted pyramid, and this is what you mm. need to know. And what I've learned is very much like if you hold your palms open to Twitter, to Reddit, to Facebook and whatever, and you say, what's the story, guys? Um, you're going to get more experts telling you what um, what you would never know. And I think that what journalists need to realize more and more is that being humble on social media is the best way to get a story and the best way to approach your subjects by literally telling someone, hey, what's going on here? Um, and my public private, my public private sort of line is pretty blurry. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's deliberately like that because I think that I will tweet about everything from politics to um, you know, uh, electro bangers to Italian soccer because they're like, that's like the gamut of what I'm interested in. And mm-hmm. I think that what that does, it tells people who are your readers, it tells you more, it tells them more about you. And then what happens, you get into um, engaged conversations with them. And unsurprisingly, then they become engaged readers of your stories. Um, the, the thing that I go back to also is that like, what happens if you actually include people on social media in your reporting, which is what we do a lot? Um, it means that when you do the story and you publish the story, it's a very high likelihood that then they'll share the story because they're part of it. They feel like mm. they've been on that journey with you. Um, so if you look at metrics of retweets and shares and things like that, you know, that's how that's how stories on social media are, are distributed these days. That's how things go viral and the most important thing for a journalist to realize is that you know in this environment what you can provide to um to your audience is for you to tell a story that they don't already know about and if you can tell a story like with an entertaining voice that's really engaging you're doing an incredible amount of um good and you're actually um providing um public value in, in the journalism that you're doing, but you need to be humble in that. And I think that being, I love seeing journos on Twitter and Facebook actually showing more and more of themselves um, and, and then showing what they actually don't know. Because a lot of the times what journalists don't know, if you expose it to social media, you'll then have people come to you and inform you what, what you can actually like, what you need to learn about the story. Mm. 
What can't you tolerate? <laughs> are, you t- are you talking about tolerate um, on social media? You, you interpret that as you need I to. I can't tolerate people who um, you think that Twitter is for links. Um, I think that uh, it's probably the, 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 one, <laughs> the one platform that is not about links at all. It's about because um, no one's traffic is being driven by Twitter. Um, Twitter is a really good laboratory for ideas and for conversations, mm. but it's not good to I – hate, I hate journos that come into Twitter and say, here's the headline, here's the link, here's a Twitter picture – now share it. And it's like, well, no, that's not what this is about. Like mm. we always think about, you know, native content, content that exists and keeps people on Twitter. Um, and I think that that's one thing that frustrates me. I think all the other stuff that frustrates me is just people on people on social media who, well, people who are low, people who loathe social media, but then spend all day on it. And it's like, <laughs> well, what are you doing? And like, why, why, you know, Twitter is something that you can opt in and out of by using by following and blocking people. So don't complain about this section of Twitter. Just don't follow it. Um, and I, I, that's one other thing that really, really annoys me um, all the time. The other thing is that yeah, people who sneer at new media, um, that sometimes gets me down. But other times, I, I, I think it's great because it means that we have a lot. Yeah, as I said before, we have a we have a long way to go to changing everyone's mind. Have you come up against? much of that resistance, that sneering? Oh, yeah, heaps. And I think that it came from my dad the first time. Like my dad was, you know, it's so funny. I was, I was. That's uh, not a job, man. Yeah, because I was the ABC. I was a reporter, TV reporter in Darwin. And mm. um, I told my dad that um, I was taking this job at BuzzFeed. Um, and he said, oh, send me the link. And so I sent him the link to the site. And he just looked at me and he just was like, what are you talking about? This is garbage, you know. He was like, what is going on on this website? How is it journalism? And then I eventually showed him the news stuff that we were doing. And I, and he was like, oh, okay, I guess so. But then he was still really, really dodgy about me leaving the ABC because in so many people's minds, the ABC is like the best and the best sort of pinnacle that you could ever do in journalism. And that sneering that we get, we get it every day and that's fine. I think that also people who um, deride what we do as clickbait and as um, – uh, you know, oh, wonder what's going to happen next with all these clickbaity style criticisms. Um, and if the first thing that people say to you, like, oh, BuzzFeed, which is m- well known for its lists and stories about cats, it's like you've just quoted an article I read this week yeah. about you. Well, that's people who say that, people who say that just haven't been on BuzzFeed in a long time, um, or just clearly don't understand what we're about. Um, so I just think that, like, you know, I, I think that the sneering and stuff that happens is, is again, I, 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 it doesn't get me down. It used to, but I, I think that, I think that if people do, a lot of the times it's because they don't really understand everything. Um, they think that, they think that everything on the site um, should be about their interest and it's like oh didn't you know that there's a lot of people on the internet that don't like that don't like things that you like and that like things that you don't like and it's it's people need to realize that they should follow buzzfeed ozpol if they like politics but then they also can follow buzzfeed celeb if they like celebrities and that's what we're trying to do and i the sneering is just it's just so silly it's people spend so much time arguing with each other. That's the other thing. I hate people who spend all day arguing with each other on twitter when what they could actually do is go out and do some reporting 
you know, I think the most important thing in this is that we keep doing reporting and we keep doing the work. We keep go getting fresh stories um, because what the journal, what journalists can sometimes be sucked into on Twitter is spending all day arguing about something on Twitter and it literally gives the audience no value, you know, and that's the thing that mm. frustrates me to no end. Other than a whole bunch of entertainment. Yeah, I don't know, does it? I think that, see, like Chris Chris Kenny um, is a great example of someone that I can get into fights with, but then it takes up half an hour of my day and then I'm like, wait, what What did I just do? And did anyone yeah. did anyone enjoy it? And if, if people enjoyed it, fine, like that's fine, that, that's good. But I think that, you know, that half an hour spent Chris and me, we both could have spent it doing something way more productive. Um, so I, I think the most important thing with... Um, arguing on Twitter, I always say, like, if you don't care about the the end result of this argument, then keep going. But if you care enough about this topic, don't argue about it on Twitter because it will just frustrate you when you get more upset. Um, and, yeah, I, 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 I want to keep going back to the fact that, like, all we're trying to do is just do some more good reporting um, and we've got, you know, an LGBT reporter now, we've got an Indigenous Affairs reporter, um, we're doing politics more and more and, you know, if we can keep changing people's minds about what BuzzFeed is, like that's my job done. Twitter is the worst place in my experience <laughs> to argue, not only for all of the reasons that you've outlined, but also because you only have 140 characters. <laughs> well, exactly. the, the amount of times I've seen people have arguments where they've tried to make their point across seven oh. or eight consecutive tweets, just getting the... Dude, chill. And also what they don't realise is that then the reply will be to only one of those tweets. And if oh. someone and if someone hasn't actually if someone has hasn't actually linked the, all those tweets together, what happens is then if someone wants to go back through the argument, it doesn't make any sense. So the argument fragmentation is oh, horrible. It's the worst. <laughs> how do you how do you calm down? How do you kick back at the end of the day or it's the weekend, I'm just gonna chill? What do you do? Yeah, I think um the, the thing that I do most is I love going to the beach. I spend a lot of time at the beach during summer. Um, I run a lot, um, but I listen to a lot of podcasts, which is the reason why I love doing this sort of stuff because no. um, I listen to podcasts in, during all of my transportation, which is involves foot traffic. Like I, I, mm. I listen to a lot of American and UK podcasts. That's how I get a lot of my news that's not via social media. Um, and I find that to be really relaxing. I also um, – to get off the noise of Facebook and Twitter and Vine and Instagram. Like I do a lot of cooking, which is, you know, I'm an, I have an Italian background. Like my dad's Italian. So no way. Does Stefano no, Italian? No, you would never have thought it. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think that what we're like, I, I still struggle though. And I think that um, I'm sure people in your audience um, to this podcast would struggle also is the constant battle between um, staying connected um, or using social media in your downtime as well as your work time. You know, it's great for work and, and all that sort of stuff. But if you can't relax without being connected, what does that say? And, of course, you know, you can actually find ways to be um, – you can find ways to use social media healthily in your leisure time. But I'm still not at that stage where I've found a really healthy balance. I'm getting there, but I'm still I'm still far away from it because – I'll still be sucked into Twitter if something happens, even when it's my days off, which is which is not great. But you know, I'm this. That, I think that's the one big um, battle that everyone in our generation who's grown up with social media is trying to fight, which is trying to figure out between 
um, online and IRL, how, how do you spend your time and how is your online time spent um, in a valuable way and, and not just wasted away online? Mark, what are you going to achieve in the next 12 months? Well, that is a great question. And I, I, I wish someone could tell me. Um, no, <laughs> I, think that, um, I think that what we want to do um, is in 12 months' time, I'd say we've had an election, which means that the federal election uh, is pretty much our grand final. Um, we, we are tooling up and getting a mm. press gallery reporter um, and, you know, I'll be part of a team that really attacks the federal election really hard. And I think that, you know, um, I was I went to the UK for four weeks to work on the BuzzFeed UK election um, and I learned heaps about well, how they sort of covered election and election night and all that sort of thing. And naturally those sort of events um, are where social media comes into its own, you know, people turn to Facebook and Twitter um, and Reddit in more ways, like it's going to be a huge traffic, um, six weeks of campaigning. So what we, what I want to do in the next 12 months is just massively smash the election. Um, and then also like, yeah, set up our press gallery, um, reporter and get into a bit of a groove down there because I'm probably going to go down there just for sitting weeks at the start, Mm. um, and, and figuring out like, what do, what do our audience want from Canberra? So that's a really exciting thing to just learn. And, you know, one of the big secrets of BuzzFeed is the the data team is just incredible. You know, the tech team are just amazing and they give you all of this data. You get all these nightly reports that tell you um, what people have been sort of reading and, and stuff like that. And, and it, it means as a journalist that you get better and better and better at understanding what people want. Um, yep. And so for the next 12 months, just want to do that. Just want to smash the election and, and find a healthy way in between, you know, the public and the private and, and, and being much more like being better at turning off social media when I'm when I'm relaxing because by golly am I shit at it at the moment. <laughs> well, Mark, when you are not relaxing, how can people find you? What social media accounts do you want to admit to? Yeah, so at Mark DeSteph on Twitter is obviously the one I spend my most time on. But that at Mark DeSteph, obviously, I'm also on Instagram with the same username. Um, I'm also. Uh, I've started a Facebook, um, a, a sort of a public Facebook account as well, which is um, Mark DeStefano. Um, and, yeah, those three basically that I, I use, it's sort of like Twitter. I spend a lot of my day on, like TweetDeck is up all the time, but I turn it off to, to write and to do reporting. Um, and, yeah, so those three basically. Mark, well, thank you for joining us on Humans of Twitter. People, make sure you follow Mark if you're interested in politics or uh, at Buzzfeed Oz uh, if you want to make sure you find out what's happening in, in Mark and Alex yeah, uh, and right. the other people at, uh, at BuzzFeed in the political sphere there. This has been Humans of Twitter, and I can confirm Mark Stefano is indeed a human. Yay. <laughs> Yay.